Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. Infectious diseases have had some pretty major impact on humans and the course of history. Microbes have been our sworn enemies since the beginning of time, and the pursuit to understand them has driven scientific advancements. There could be a breakthrough at any time. Take the plague, specifically the bubonic plague. You know those pictures of men walking around in long coats and masks, crafted into the shape of a raven's beak? Well... It was the plague we have to thank for that. What starts as headaches and vomiting soon turns into blood clots, depriving tissue of oxygen that turns black as they, and you, die. That is unfortunate, Captain. In 541 BC, plague swept through the Roman Empire and contributed to its fall. And in 1347, another epidemic reached Europe through six sailors. A quarter of all Europeans died. But after a few more epidemics and the discovery of antibiotics, the plague is a haunting memory. All these poor bastards had the plague. Syphilis is another infectious disease, but it comes with a lot more baggage because, well, it's transmitted through sex. And for much of history, sex was just not something people wanted to talk about. Even though the first outbreak of the disease is said to have happened because of the proclivities of the victorious French armies in 1495. And the shameful nature of transmission meant that even when crucial discoveries about the disease were made, people would rather admit they had leprosy than syphilis. So treatment for many people was delayed, with devastating consequences. If you've ever been to the Munch Museum in Oslo before, you might have stumbled across a painting that at a cursory glance exudes a haunting aura. It shows the ghostly white figure of a child draped over its mother's knees as she weeps into a handkerchief. Small red drops of paint speckle the child's emaciated body, giving the audience a haunting insight into the child's affliction. The child is dying from congenital syphilis. The artist behind this compelling creation, Edvard Munch, created the image in the late 1800s surprising the public with its audacity. Okay, fine, let's talk about sex. Munch's painting was so shocking because it acknowledged something that many had turned a collective blind eye to. Syphilis is heritable, and as such, the painting is called The Inheritance. Reading between the strokes of paint whispers another distressing commentary that many chose to ignore. Syphilis left women bereft of motherhood. You see, pregnant women afflicted with syphilis faced a 50% chance of miscarriage or stillbirth. And syphilis was not the sole STI with fertility-impairing potential. Gonorrhea and the koala's arch-nemesis, chlamydia, also cause infertility by something called pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. Luckily for us, our fate isn't as dire as the koalas, with some populations across Australia declining by up to 80% due to the disease. Stay out of that cave, koala bear! Left untreated, though, infertility becomes a shared ordeal for both humans and koalas alike. 
Infertility is defined as the failure to achieve pregnancy after 12 months or more of regular unprotected sexual intercourse. And millions of people suffer from some type of infertility. 17.5% of the whole population to be exact. That's one in six. 30% of female infertility can be traced back to tubal factor infertility, a consequence of PID. Whether Munch himself knew the full extent of STIs is unclear, because all those scientists had been investigating STIs for centuries, making monumental discoveries like that of Schauden and Hoffman identifying the cause of syphilis, a bacterium called Treponida pallidum. It wasn't women the scientific community was studying. In fact, throughout much of the 19th and 20th centuries, despite gonorrhea and chlamydia being the most sterilizing diseases of women, the medical profession treated them as minor nuisance conditions, afflicting only young men sowing their wild oats. I can assure you that women enjoy physical pleasure just as much as men. I don't know if you've realized this, but the reproductive organs of men and women are very, very different. And therefore, how STIs impact women versus men is also very different. Even today, over 50% of phallic research is devoted solely to the male penis, while less than 10% is devoted to our dear old friend, the vagina. I mean, penises are great and all, but with more than half of the world population being female, it seems like we're missing a pretty essential part of the puzzle, especially when the continuation of the human race depends on that part of the puzzle. And the stigma that Munch illustrates in the bowed head of the grieving mother persists today, despite STIs being increasingly common. So how worried should we be about STIs if motherhood is on the agenda? What's going on in the body when we catch an STI? And how can we protect ourselves while still enjoying the most natural and essential part of human existence? Hi, I'm Dr. Sne Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate. And this is Everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce. What the heart? In this episode, Dr. Roz Foster from the Sydney Sexual Health Clinic is back to give us the lowdown on STIs and fertility, and her insight might just surprise you. So you are our sexual health guru today, which is super helpful. That is that is my hat for today, <laughs> yes. So I heard, well, actually a mate of mine said something to me the other day, which I thought was quite funny. He said, MBAs are now like STIs, everybody's had them. <laughs> so they're more common than we think, aren't they? They are super common, yeah, they really are. Chlamydia is the most common bacterial STI here in, in Australia. And just to put it in context, there were about 90,000 notified infections back in 2020 in, in the Australian population. Another way of looking at it is that they estimate that 5% of the population under the age of 24 have chlamydia at any one time. So that's quite a lot of STIs. Yeah, it is indeed, isn't it? And so, you know, one of the tricky things is somebody comes in, this is my story, right? Somebody comes in to see me and I might have done a routine STI screen before I'm putting an IUD in or something. Yeah. And they come back and they've got a positive result. 
That's a, a really tricky conversation to have, isn't it? Do you have any tips or tricks for people having the conversation before they start having unprotected sex with a partner? Yeah, look, it's tricky. I mean, it shouldn't be. It should be really easy, but, um, <laughs> but people don't find it easy. Though it still is this kind of, for many people, a kind of stigma or shame just around sex in general. And, and there just shouldn't be. If you're having sex, you'll come into contact with one STI or another at some point. So I think it's just about being kind of open and honest and just letting a partner know that you've been diagnosed with an STI and try to do that without any sort of judgment from your part. Like, you know, it obviously came from you or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and without that kind of feeling of, of, it's your of shame or, yeah, yeah, or either. And, and, and people worry about it and they're like, oh, you know, they might, you know, this person might leave me if they find out I've got such and such infection. And that is really hard. And it's hard to be thinking that. And it's hard if someone does react badly when you tell them about an STI. But we can support people with that. In some ways, I think if you tell a partner you've got an STI and they react really badly and then you never see them again, that's quite a good way of kind of weeding out a not very good potential <laughs> long-term partner. I know that doesn't help in the short term, I know. And I find most people are really, really quite supportive. Anecdotally, people report back that it can almost kind of help to improve intimacy or trust because you've told someone this really quite difficult thing. You've sort of shared this, this piece of information with them. And for a lot of people, that can sort of there might be a little bit of like shock or something to start off with and then it can bring people together because it, it shows that you've kind of trusted that person and you've been open with them and you've had that little bit of vulnerability and it can bring people closer. And I guess the other thing is, you know, people who want to avoid the whole scenario of, of getting an STI might want to have that conversation with a partner before they stop using condoms or before they become intimate at all and, and might want to say, well, actually... I'd like you to do an STI check or can you tell me about your sexual health history? And of course, that's like, that's another difficult conversation to have, isn't it? It's almost like give it, asking them to give you an interview, you know. <laughs> no, Job it's interview. True. Do you have the criteria I need or not? <laughs> no, it's true. I think some people just do it naturally and do it really well and I'm just yeah. so impressed and, and some people do, right? So if you're going to have sex with someone and not use a condom, even still using condoms like you say, then... You just ask them, you know, when did you last have a sexual health screen? And if the person goes, I don't know what that is, then you can kind of explain what it is. And sometimes people go together with their sort of new sexual partner and they both go and get tested together. Or the person might say, you know, I had one done last week and here are my results and they're like super organized and that's great. But so I think some people are just really good at doing that anyway. And I think if you're not, then just give it a go because actually, again, it's a, a really nice way of just being open and proactive with a partner. And I think most people appreciate having that conversation. I would entirely agree. And with things like chlamydia, I think in, in part it's become this kind of acceptance that it because it is so prevalent in the community. Certainly when I see patients in my practice, the, the, a lot of people have had chlamydia at some point in their life. But I worry sometimes that we're becoming a bit too relaxed about it. Patients are sometimes presenting quite late when they know they've had a contact. What's the danger in doing that? What are the consequences of an untreated chlamydia infection? Yeah, I th and I think it's about getting a, a balance, really, I suppose, because I think I don't want people to be terrified of, of STIs and, and worried about all the complications that can happen. But at the same time, I agree, if you, if you stop testing or thinking about it, then there are complications that can occur from it. So that the ones that we really worry about with chlamydia and, and gonorrhea in particular, in people who have a, a uterus and a, and a vagina, is when you don't treat an infection, it can go on to cause three main issues. 
So you can get chronic pelvic pain, which can be really difficult to manage and really difficult to treat. And it can also cause adverse pregnancy or fertility outcomes. So it can cause what we call a tubal factor infertility. So infertility due to problems with the fallopian tubes and also ectopic pregnancies. And is there a kind of guide, like how long do I have if you've had an encounter with someone who then tells you they've, they've got chlamydia or gonorrhea? What's the kind of window before that damage starts to happen? Is there a guide time in that space? Or, or is it just go and get treated as soon as you can and as soon as you know? Yeah, so I think if someone's told you that they've got an STI, it doesn't automatically mean you'll, you'll have it. You don't, it's not 100% sort of transmission rate, but it's a really good idea to go and get tested even if you don't have symptoms because, like you said, the majority of people probably don't have symptoms. Exactly when to go and get tested is a bit of, a, it's a bit of an unknown. We say two weeks because that's what's in the guidelines. So if you've had sex with someone, they tell you they've got chlamydia, then leave it for two weeks before going and getting tested. That's probably being a bit conservative and probably come up positive way before that. But in terms of what happens if you leave it for a long time, at what point might you sort of run into problems with, with those complications that I mentioned? We've got quite good evidence now that the highest risk is if you do have symptoms. So if you develop a, a condition called pelvic inflammatory disease, so that's where you have usually symptoms, but not always, but symptoms of um, pain in the pelvis. Um, you might have deep pain when you have sex. If you have recurrent symptoms or recurrent infections and PID, that's when your likelihood of, of developing those complications, the chronic pelvic pain, the infertility or the ectopic pregnancy occur. So it's higher risk if you have symptoms and if you leave those symptoms untreated or you have recurrent symptoms with asymptomatic infection, your risk of the chronic complications is probably less, but it's still something that's there. You can still pass that infection on to another person and you still may get some um, complications from it. So it's best to know about it than, than not. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between how bacterials and viral STIs impact our immune systems? Yeah, so bacterial STIs, sort of common ones that you'll have heard of, uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea. There's also something called mycoplasma genitalium. They're the sort of three bacterial STIs that we think about that are transmitted from genitals to genitals when people have, have sex. You've got viral STIs, so ones that you might have heard of would be herpes simplex virus or HSV or human papillomavirus, HPV, which is the virus that can cause genital warts. And then you've got other things which we also class as STIs. So syphilis, which is a bacterial STI. You can class things like HIV, which is a STI or a bloodborne virus, hepatitis B. And I guess they all impact the immune system in really quite different ways. You can look at the way an organism, an infective organism, causes disease. It's, it's partly how that virus or bacteria interacts with the body when it infects you and what kind of damage the infection causes. And also how your immune system deals with that STI. Some STIs will cause symptoms, some won't. Some will be cleared by your immune system, some won't. But they're all a bit different and it depends partly on the organism itself and also how your immune system deals with it. And we're all given slightly different immune systems. We inherit different immune systems. My immune system will be slightly different to yours. So if you and I both come into contact with a particular STI, our immune systems will deal slightly differently with that with that STI. 
And I think um, oftentimes people get quite worried about what the treatment's going to look like. But actually treating straightforward chlamydia and gonorrhea is pretty simple, isn't it? It's really simple. So it's honestly, it's just, it's best to just get the test, get, get the diagnosis, then you can get rid of it. And it's, it's usually a short course of, of antibiotics. It depends exactly. But with chlamydia at the moment, and things can change, and there's other treatments you can have, but it would be one tablet twice a day for seven days. With gonorrhea, it's an injection there in the treatment room with the, with the GP or the person who's seeing you and usually just two tablets to take as a single dose. So it's, it's super easy. And so chlamydia and gonorrhea are two really common STIs, which a lot of people know about, they've heard about. Things like syphilis, it's been long considered one of these old-fashioned kind of illnesses dating back to the medieval times, you know. It was even spoken about as the sort of the disease of insanity in some ways, wasn't it? I remember back in the days as a junior doctor, when we used to see elderly patients with confusion, you would screen them for syphilis that hadn't been treated from way back. But, you know, some of these old STIs are making a bit of a comeback now, aren't they? And we're seeing a bit more of it than we did before. Yeah, we are. I mean, in my day-to-day job, we see, uh, like, all day, we just see syphilis. So we see a lot of syphilis, and that can be symptomatic syphilis, so kind of the early stages of, of syphilis where you have symptoms, like sort of ulcers and a rash. We do occasionally see neurosyphilis, so that's syphilis that's affecting the nervous system in various different ways. It's, it's really rare these days to see those kind of long-term complications that you were mentioning before where it can affect heart or the, or the brain or the nervous system because you've had it untreated for you know, decades usually. But we're seeing a lot of it and it's on the rise in women as well in Australia at the moment. And there's a campaign at the moment to encourage people who are in the age of being able to have children or planning a pregnancy or in early stages of pregnancy to make sure that they get screened for syphilis because we are seeing we're seeing cases there's, and, and we can't quite explain why that's happening, but we're seeing more cases of syphilis now particularly in sort of younger women where that wasn't the case. And it's interesting. I mean, by nature of it being this older illness, you know, this thing that's been around for a long time, there is sometimes an assumption that it can't be treated, but it is completely treatable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the easiest STIs to cure. You just give a dose of, of penicillin and it's gone. It's not a terribly nice treatment to have. It's, it's two injections into the buttocks, but it's, it's a one-off and it's done. So I'd I say easy. I think people, when they get the injections, they'll be like, that was not easy. It was not very nice. But <laughs> it's easy insofar as it's a one-off dose and it's cured. So STIs can also just not just affect your fertility and the health of a woman, but they can also be passed to the baby, can't they? You talked a little bit before about syphilis being diagnosed in pregnancy and the like but other STIs also place a newborn at risk don't they? Yeah so I I mean I'd say syphilis is probably the the biggest one that we really like there should just be no cases of neonatal infection with syphilis in in this day and age because we should be screening and we should be treating so it shouldn't happen. You get quite awful potentially pregnancy outcomes with with syphilis with death of the fetus in, in the uterus early spontaneous miscarriages and stillbirths. It's, it's quite shocking what can happen with, with syphilis. And so I think that's, that's one to really just think about and make sure that you get screened for. If a baby is born 
and infected with syphilis, then there are certain features that can get picked up early in that neonatal period, but also they can present sort of years down the line with complications and it can affect every organ system in the body. So syphilis, I'd say, is probably the most sort of important one that we really need to be thinking about at the moment. And that's not to scare people, it's just to say get that blood test. With chlamydia, then yes, you can get issues with the newborn. So it's, it's where the baby's born and it comes into contact with chlamydia in the birth canal. And probably two serious ones would be the pneumonia, which can come on any time between one and three months after being born, and also um, eye infections and conjunctivitis. Gonorrhea can cause a really severe conjunctivitis, so an inflammation of the eye, which can result in, in blindness. So these are things that are rare, but they're really easy to treat and prevent. So, Roz, let's talk about herpes, because uh, there's a lot of confusion about out there about herpes. Uh, type 1, the cold sore type, type 2, the genital type. Do they occur in, in the genitals, in the mouth? Where, where They're all over the place. What's going on? Yeah, so herpes is, is super common. Like more people have herpes than don't in Australia. So estimates are that about 80% of the population carry herpes. But most of us don't know we've got it because we don't get symptoms. So it's really common. It's a virus. It's herpes simplex virus. And it's a virus that's spread through skin-to-skin contact. So kind of rubbing one bit of skin against another and it infects the soft mucosal parts of the, the body predominantly. So people will get herpes on their lips or in their mouth and that's when it gets called a cold sore. And most people don't worry too much about cold sores just because it's on the mouth and the mouth's like all okay for whatever reason. <laughs> but then people will also get herpes in the genitals and that tends to be the one that people feel a little bit more worried about just because it's in the genitals. But it's the same virus. There are two types. There's type 1, type 2. The sort of historical teaching that you might have got sort of taught about back in med school, I know I was, was that type 1 is the one that causes oral cold sores and type 2 is the one that causes genital herpes. But that's not the case. They both can cause herpes in, in either site and there's probably more type 1 in the genitals now than type 2. Although it's not curable, it is manageable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, so that's the thing I think that people worry about with cold sores and genital herpes is that it's a virus that the body doesn't clear. So it's once you've got the virus in the body, it's, it's there long term. So you can have treatment to help with symptoms. So some people, once they've had a single episode of herpes, will go on to have other recurrences, either whether it's the mouth or the genitals. Not everyone does, but lots of people do. And you can take antiviral tablets when you get a recurrence just to minimize the symptoms and reduce the amount of time that you have those symptoms. Some people choose to go on to what's called suppressive therapy if they're getting lots of recurrences and it's interfering with their quality of life or sometimes people take it to reduce the risk of transmitting the virus to another person. And I think it's interesting with with infections like herpes and warts, you know, we say all the time, you know, safe sex, use condoms, but unfortunately condoms won't really help in this situation, will they? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, condoms do reduce your risk of transmitting herpes to another person, but it's not 100%. 100%. It depends where the herpes virus is on the body. And if it's not, if it's on a bit of skin that's not covered by the condom, then you can still get transmissions. Condoms are great for transmission of lots of STIs, but they're not so good for transmission of herpes or, or warts like you, you mentioned. So warts are caused by a virus called HPV or human papilloma virus. That virus is, is a bit different to, to HSV, but the body does clear that. So most people will spontaneously clear HPV virus within a year, almost everyone by two years, even without any treatment. The HPV that causes genital warts, is it the same type that causes cervical cancer? I mean, there are 
hundreds of strains of HPV, right? So there can often be concerns, I find, with patients who come in with genital warts, worried that they're then going to get cervical cancer. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, I reckon probably everyone who has sexual contact at some point, they're like, you'll just come into contact with the HPV virus. It's really common. Not everyone gets symptoms. Warts aren't something to to get too worried about. They're, They're easy to treat if you want to treat them and the body will clear them as well. It's separate to the the wart virus that causes cervical cancer. So that's a separate thing. And it's important to go and get cervical screening tests or pap smear tests, as they used to be called. I get asked that a lot. And it's something people really worry Mm. about, right? But it's it's not something anyone needs to worry about. And then there's these two sort of infections that are less lesser known and classically can cause no symptoms at all. Sometimes more prevalent symptoms are in men. Uh, than they are in women. But urea plasma and mycoplasma, you know, a lot of doctors don't test for it. There's advice given about if you test positive, should you treat, should you not treat? What's the score with urea plasma and mycoplasma? Yeah, so it's quite a sort of controversial and difficult area to <laughs> to navigate. So I'm glad that you brought it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> mycoplasma is classed as an SCI. So this is mycoplasma genitalium. It can be transmitted from from person to person in a similar way to chlamydia, really, and, and gonorrhea. And it can go on to cause similar complications in terms of sort of pelvic inflammatory disease, so that inflammation of the higher genital tract, and probably some adverse pregnancy outcomes as well, although the association is a bit less strong or clearly defined as it is with chlamydia. Where the controversy arises, I think, with, with mycoplasma genitalium is that we're not encouraged currently anyway to screen for, for MG. And the majority of people who do have mycoplasma genitalium don't have symptoms. So it's a bit, a bit of a difficult one to sort of navigate and work out when we should be testing and what we should do with the findings. So if someone's got symptoms, then we definitely recommend treating. If somebody's a contact, a known contact of mycoplasma genitalium, then we recommend that they get tested and get treated if that result is positive. But we don't currently screen people for the mycoplasma genitalium in terms of the sort of national guidelines anyway. Sometimes those results will come up positive because you'll be testing for something else and the lab will give you that result anyway. And then it becomes difficult trying to work out whether or not that person who doesn't have symptoms needs to be treated or not. And it can be quite a sort of difficult discussion to have the treatments themselves can be a little bit tricky. So there's quite a lot of antibiotic resistance to mycoplasma genitalium, which means that it can be difficult to treat. And then so you can end up with somebody who doesn't have any symptoms. With women, we usually recommend treating. But in a, uh, for example, you know, if you have a, a male who doesn't have female partners and they've not got any symptoms, you can end up sort of trying to treat someone for months on end with endless sort of quite, you know, antibiotics that have, can have side effects and they're don't get better. So it becomes a little bit tricky to know mm. exactly how to how to manage it. If you're diagnosed with mycoplasma genitalium, for whatever reason the test was done, usually most doctors would recommend to be treated for that. And, and there are options that you can just end up having a few different courses of antibiotics before you're able to, to clear it. And it's worth just bearing in mind, I think, that the, the sort of spontaneous clearance rate for mycoplasma genitalium is, is actually quite high. So some um, 55% by three months. And then the one I quote mostly, which is just over 90% by 12 months. So if you leave it without treating it, most people will clear it. But again, that can be a an unnerving thing to do both as a, a patient and a, 
and adopt it. And so urea plasma then, what's the go with urea plasma? Yeah, so in Australia, we don't class it as an STI. There are some countries in Europe that do. So again, it's one of these controversial things. And when you start looking at it in detail, STIs, it can be quite difficult to prove that something is passed from one person to another and that it then causes symptoms or or disease. And that's not always the most straightforward thing to define or work out. Nevertheless, so there's a couple of different types of urea plasma that come up on the tests that we do in the laboratory. We don't class them currently anyway as STIs. They're probably more part of a sort of vaginal dysbiosis type picture. So they might contribute to things like bacterial vaginosis. So less something that you've caught from another partner, but more a kind of marker of the fact that you've got an imbalance of bacteria in the vagina. There'll be people who disagree with that, but the sort of current thinking in in Australia is that we don't class them as as STIs. And and they don't need to be treated, but sometimes people do end up treating them if if people have got symptoms and they can't find another cause for that. So STIs are super common, but it's really, really important that we try and shake this stigma around them, I think. And there's no reason to feel shame or worry. It's really important to go and see a doctor, whether it's a sexual health doctor or a GP, because they can be treated, right? And if we don't treat them, then the risk of those complications and passing it on also increase. So, yeah, I guess it's go see a doctor. I agree. And I I think it should just be seen as part of your overall health. And it's something that affects people from an early age up. You know, as you get older, it's important to make sure you get your blood pressure checked and things like that. But when you're younger, then if you're sexually active, then go and get your sexual health checked. You know, make sure you're sleeping enough, make sure you're not too stressed, doing some exercise and go and get your sexual health screen done. Because, you know, STIs are common and, and they can go on to cause problems. But if you pick them up early and treat them, then you're all good. Thanks, Ross. Thanks so much. So there you go. Sexually transmitted disease can indeed impact your fertility. But that doesn't mean one STI or even a couple will sabotage your plans to have children if you get the right support and treatment. Early intervention is key. So even if you're not showing symptoms, regular screenings are so important, particularly for those with multiple sexual partners. And let's face it, the last thing any of us want to think about in bed are STIs. So prevention really is the best treatment. Be sure to join us next week for more debunked myths and your health questions answered. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sneh Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.